great. There's a lot of energy in the room. That's good to know on a hot day like this. Um, we are going to be carrying on through the book of Ezra, as Anahi said. Um, we spent the last couple of weeks starting this book. Um, and this is generally what we do at the Globe Church. Um, we pick a book of the Bible, and we work our way through it from cover to cover, um, trying to understand what God is teaching us through that book. Um, so today we're in Ezra chapter 3, which is in page 474, if you've got one of these blue Bibles. I should introduce myself. My name's Johnny, if we haven't met. Um, another one of the elders here. It's wonderful to meet you. Um, I'm really looking forward to working through Ezra chapter 3 today. Uh, let, me, let me pray for us as we get started. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you speak to us through your word. We thank you for this book of Ezra and what you've been teaching us so far that we see that you are the God overall, that you're the God that invites us to be in relationship with you. We pray now that we would learn more of you um, as we look at it today. Amen. Okay, so we're going to jump into Ezra chapter 3, but, but as we start, I think I'll give a bit of context um, of where we've got to so far. So the book of Ezra starts with God's people, the Israelites, away from where they should be. They're scattered all over Persia, the lands that in today, North Africa, the Middle East. They're scattered and they're far away from God. And then what we see in the book of Ezra is God rebuilding the temple in order to restore his people, to restore his relationship with his people. And in Ezra chapter 1, we saw a proclamation from King Cyrus. He was the powerful king, the ruler of all the lands. And he told the Israelites, you're free to go home. And so they went home. And last week in Ezra chapter 2, we saw, we counted them. 42,300 of them went home. And here, Ezra chapter 3, verse 1, if you look at it before we read properly, but Ezra chapter 3, when the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled together as one in Jerusalem. That's the context that we're going into Ezra chapter 3. So these people who were scattered in judgment across the lands of Persia are now assembled together as one, united in Jerusalem, the land that God had promised them to be together with God once again. And we know from last week that they're there to build the temple. So that's where we are. That's Ezra chapter 3. Um, and let me read from verse 1 now. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled together as one in Jerusalem. Then Joshua, son of Josedek, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and his associates, began to build the altar of God, altar of, altar of the God of Israel, to sacrifice burnt offerings on it, in accordance with what was written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on the foundation and sacrificed the burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both morning and evening sacrifices. Then, in accordance with what was written, they celebrated the festival of the tabernacles with the required number of burnt offerings prescribed for each day. After that, they presented the regular burnt offerings, the new moon sacrifices, and the sacrifices for all the appointed sacred festivals of the Lord, as well as those brought as free will offerings to the Lord." On the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer the burnt offerings to the Lord, though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. 
Then they gave money to the masons and carpenters and gave food and drink and olive oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre so that they would bring cedar logs by sea from Lebanon to Joppa as authorized by Cyrus, king of Persia. In the second month of the second year after their arrival in the house of God in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, son of Josedek, and the rest of the people, the priests and the Levites, and all who had returned from captivity to Jerusalem, began the work. They appointed Levites 20 years old and older to supervise the building of the house of the Lord. Joshua and his sons and brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons, descendants of Hodaviah, and the sons of Henadad and their sons and brothers, all Levites, joined together in supervising those working on the house of God. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and with the trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, the king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, He is good. His love towards Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and the family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple. While many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of, sh the, sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard far away. There we go, that's Ezra chapter 3. Now, I am not a builder, believe it or not. Um, I once tried to build, well, put on um, some wardrobe doors from Ikea, um, and I chucked away the instructions, obviously. Um, tried to put the doors on, thought I did a pretty good job, put them all together, there was a glass pane that went in the middle, um, and they were nicely sitting in place. And there was one little plastic thing, it was like a little L shape, it was about this big. I thought, how much use can that be? So obviously just ignored it. Um, Turns out pretty important. A day later, came home, my cat had like made a little bit of noise next to the wardrobe, and the door had fallen right off and smashed. There was glass all over the floor. I'm not much of a builder. But um, I have watched almost the entire cat back catalogue of Grand Designs. So I know a thing or two about big infrastructure projects, right? And big infrastructure projects always start with the first thing, right? You've got to put the first thing first. And the first thing is always what? The foundation, right? Whenever you're starting a building, you always start with the foundation. You see it on Grand Designs. They have that really cool like, um, computer bit, which looks a bit like The Sims, and they dig the hole, and they fill it up with concrete, and then they all come up, and then it's only right at the end that like, the kitchen island and the really cool furniture goes in. Right? Or when you're cycling past a building site, and if you go past it every day in London, you know how at first they dig really, really, really deep? And it's only after about a month or several months of digging deep that they start going up because you always start with the foundations, right? So why are the Israelites building the temple inside out? Why are they building the temple inside out? Did you see it? Right, so if you always start with the foundations, look where they started. Right, so we've seen that they gathered as one in Jerusalem. Then, verse 2 they began to build the altar of God. Right? So they haven't even started digging yet, let alone laying the foundations. They start building the altar of God. That's the centerpiece at the heart of the temple. It would be like the people who were building this school hall, being like, you know what, don't worry about the foundations, we're going to get the stage in place. 
Let's get the stage in place, then we'll think about the rest of it. Right? They start with the altar in verse 2. Then, it's only in verse 7 that they even go and buy the material to build the rest of it. That's when they go and pay the people to get the cedar and the wood and all of that kind of thing. And then in verse 8, in the second month of the second year, that's seven months after they built the altar, that's when they begin to work in verse 8. And it's not until verse 10 that we see them build it. So why are they building the temple inside out? Right? It always starts with the foundations. They're building the altar first. It's because this isn't just a building project. This has never been about the building. That's good news to us at the Globe Church, right? Those of us that have been around eight years, 11 venues, particularly survivors of the Africa Center, you'll be pleased to know it's not about the building. But it's never been about the building. This is a movement of God, yes, to rebuild the temple, but to restore his people into relationship with him. He's rebuilding the temple in order to restore relationship. And so where the building always starts with the foundations, restoring the relationship always starts with sacrifice. The first thing is the sacrifice. It all starts with sacrifice. So look down again with me at chapter, th- at, at chapter 3. Every single verse between verses 2 and 6 mention this phrase, burn offerings. Did you see it? Look again, okay? Verse 2, they build the altar in order to sacrifice burnt offerings on it. And then in verse 3, we see them starting to integrate with the world around them, despite their fear of the people around them. Interesting they'll be scared, right? There's people around them who don't like that they're being obedient to God. They don't like that they're sacrificing to him. But despite that fear, they laid the the altar on the foundations and sacrificed burnt offerings on it. Then in verse 4, according according to what is written, they celebrated the festival of the tabernacles with the required number of burnt offerings. Verse 5, after that, they presented regular burnt offerings, morning and evening. And then verse 6, there's a summary of the whole lot. On the first day of the seventh month, before they laid the foundation, they started making burnt offerings. So here they go. Here were the Israelites. They've gone back to Israel to build the temple of God. But it all starts with sacrifice. And why is that? Why does it start with sacrifice? I think there are, there are two big things that the sacrifice shows us. And the first is that it shows us that Israel know their need for a substitute. Right? Israel know their need for a substitute. We all know what a substitute is. Um, we've always done that online order from Tesco. And you're looking forward to your punnet of strawberries. And they're like, sorry, substituted out for some frozen blueberries. And you're like, what's that? Or some carrots. And they're like, no, you get three turnips instead. It's like... How am I going to dip that in my hummus? I don't know. Anyway, we all know what a substitute is. It's a replacement. Okay. So when Israel arrive in Jerusalem, the reason why it starts with sacrifice is because they recognize their need for a replacement because Israel have got a big problem. Israel have got a big problem. Their problem's so much bigger than the archaeological stability of the temple. They've rejected God. 
Israel have rejected God. The reason why the temple was destroyed in the first place was because 70 years ago in the great temple of Solomon, they started building idols to other gods. They're worshipping other people, other things. And it's not just the act of worship. They've rejected God in their hearts. Right? They choose to live for themselves every day. They're selfish. They lust after things that they shouldn't have. There's this big problem between Israel and God. And we call it sin. The Bible calls it sin. And the problem with sin is that God hates it. He absolutely hates it. And, and when people, a group of people like Israel, when they arrive in Jerusalem, are living in sin, are stuck in sin, they, had, they deserve to be punished by God. And so what we see in the sacrifice is Israel recognizing their need for a substitute. Because what God says is, I'm angry at sin. He has this right anger at sin. And Israel say, well, we can offer you a burnt offering. We can offer you a lamb. A burnt offering is is simply a lamb that they take from the field and they, they burn it on the altar until it is nothing more than a crisp. There's no meat for them to eat. And the idea of the sacrifice is you recognize that if you offer that lamb to God, God's anger is poured out on the lamb instead of God's people. As a substitute, there is someone, there is something to take the anger of God, and then God's people can be free to be in relationship with him again. The the theology word for this is is propitiation. It means that God is is angry, he's rightly angry, and the sacrifice, the, the burnt offering, the lamb, absorbs the anger of God, takes it away as a substitute for God's people so that God's people are free to be in relationship with him. You see, the sacrifice demonstrates that Israel know their need for a substitute because they've got this massive problem and and they're sinful. They're far away from God. So it starts with sacrifice because they know the need for a substitute and also it demonstrates faith that God has made a way. Okay, it demonstrates faith that God has made a way because Israel didn't make this up, right? It wasn't a bunch of the the Levites and the priests sitting around a a campfire thinking, oh gosh, you've got this big old problem. What are we going to do about it? How are we possibly going to rewrite with God? Okay, I know, I know. I'm going to put a lamb on an altar and let it burn out. That'll be fine. No, God gave them this way. This is written down in the law. You can look at it. Leviticus chapters 20 to 26 are full of all of this stuff. God has written it down and said, Israel, there's a big problem, but I've made a way for you to be right with me. And that's the sacrifice. And so the reason it starts with sacrifice is because they know the need for their substitute, and God has made a way for them to be right with him again. And obeying the law, obeying this list of commandments that we see in Leviticus, demonstrates the faith of Israel in the law of God. It demonstrates their faith in God. Right? So when I chucked away the instruction manual when I was putting together that IKEA wardrobe, I was choosing to put faith in myself, right? There was a good divine figure out there, the God of IKEA, who was making a way right for me. And if I had put my faith in Ikea, I would have known that that little right-angled clip was exactly what I needed to stop the door from falling down. 
But I didn't put my faith in Ikea. I put my faith in myself and it crumbled. Do you see, if you are given a law, if you're given a rule, to follow the rule, to obey the rule, is to demonstrate faith in that rule or faith in the person that gave it to you. Another example, think, imagine you're in a jungle, right, and you're lost, and it's overgrown, and there are vines dangling from the trees, and it's thick, and you don't know where you are. You're completely disoriented. There's a snake that's trying to attack you over here, and a monkey over there, and you don't know what's going on. And then someone comes up to you, and they say, here's some instructions. Head east. Don't light a fire. Only eat the blackberries. Right. What am I going to do? I've got a choice. I can either put my faith in that man that's given me those instructions, and I get my compass out, I only head east, I only eat the blackberries, I never light a fire, or I can do my own thing. Do you get it? Obedience to the law is demonstrating faith that God has made a way. So here we are. When, when Israel arrive in Jerusalem, they've got this big problem. There's this big problem that they're far away from God. And it starts with sacrifice. They do these burnt offerings daily, morning, evening. They're celebrating these festivals. They're offering these sacrifices to the Lord because they know that they need a substitute. And they've got faith that God has made a way. And that's true for Israel. And it's true for us too. If you're not a Christian here, if you're not a Christian and you've never heard what the Bible has to say, these two things are what it means to be a Christian. Know that you need a substitute. You see, we also live lives that are far away from God. I worship other idols every day. Right? Solomon built golden calves in his temple, but I worship the God of money, power, status every single day. My heart is also far from God. I choose to live a life that is selfish and self-gratifying every single day. And if I'm to be right with God, I need a substitute. I need a substitute. I can't do it myself because every day I wake up and I walk away from God. And I dare say it, that is true for every single one of us here. And we have the same problem that Israel felt, had, which is that God is angry at us. God is angry at that sin in us. So we need to know that we need a substitute. But there's good news. We, have, we can have faith that God has made a way. God, in Jesus Christ, came to earth and was the perfect sacrifice. Not just a lamb from a field, but the living God on earth. Sinless, perfect offered to God as the perfect sacrifice once and for all for the redemption of many so that we can have faith that he has made the way for us to be right with God. If we trust in God, if we trust in Jesus, the sacrifice that Jesus has made, that is what it means to be a Christian. We can have faith that God has made a way. So the Israelites, the Israelites are here in Jerusalem and they start with sacrifice. Because sacrifice always comes first. They need, the, they need to be married right with God. So it starts with sacrifice. And then in verse 7, we see that they get to work. 
right? So it starts with sacrifice, and then they get to work. So first of all, they restore their relationship with God. They enter into a right worship with God, and then they get to work. They give money to the masons and carpenters, food and drink and olive oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre. Interestingly, these are exactly the same people who they work with on the building of the first temple. You can see that in 2 Chronicles. Sidon and Tyre were two port towns just north of Jerusalem, and they shipped in all the cedar from Lebanon, and that was what built the Temple of Solomon. And so just as in Ezra chapter 1, we saw this need for continuity. This is rebuilding the temple. Ezra is showing us that again here. And then in the second month of the second year, they began to work in verse 8. They began to work. I don't know um, how many of us have done a day on a building site, um, every now and again, I've, I've helped out with people that are doing labor. I actually, I actually enjoy it, but it's really, really hard work, right? You're digging holes, you're mixing cement, you're carrying heavy things around. They're working hard. It's not easy to work for God. It's not easy to build the temple. But it is for everyone. Did you see that in verse 8? It's not easy at all. But it is for everyone, all who had returned from captivity, to go to Jerusalem. Every single person, all 42,000, if you were here last week, you had the joy of meeting all of them. All 42,000 of them have a role to play in the building of the temple. It's not easy, but it is for everyone. And that's not to say it's the same for everyone, right? Like we see in, um, in verse 9, there are a bunch of Levites who are set apart to do a supervising role. So there are, not everybody has the same job to do in the building of the temple. But everyone's got something to do. And we see that, we see that very similarly today in the church. Right? Not everyone has the same role to play. When, um, in the New Testament, when the church is described, Paul writes about the church, and he describes it as a body. He says there are many different parts. Someone's a hand who does handy things. Someone's an eye who does eye things. Someone's a foot, and they kick a football. And it's, a body has many different parts who all need to come together to make it work. And so just as the Israelites here get to work in building the temple, we all have a role, a, a role of some work to do build God's people here on earth today, to contribute to the building of, of God's kingdom. And it will be different for all of us. Some of us will feed us on the catering team. There are loads who will teach the kids in minis at the moment. Some people will serve church by standing up for Jesus in your workplace when you feel opposition from around you. For some people, staying at home and resting is the best way that you can serve your church family, and it's hard because you feel the anxiety of having to be somewhere else, but you stay at home to look after yourself and your mental health. Some people will just come along and give a smile to someone across the room. Some people will open their arms and welcome those who come for the first time. Some people will preach. Some people will lead focus groups. Some people will clean the floors and put away the chairs. We've all got different roles to do. There's different work to play in the service of God's people. But there is a role for everybody. There is work to do for everybody. But the thing we have to remember that the Israelites got instinctively here in Ezra chapter 3 is that it all starts with sacrifice. Right? The reason we can work, the reason why that long list of things can happen is because of the sacrifice that Jesus has made. By God's grace, we are free to work for God's people. 
And I was thinking about this. I was thinking about how, how does this apply. And, and I think there are three ways that um, I get this wrong, personally. I think one way is that I, I distance myself from my sin. So when I do something um, that I'm ashamed of that is wrong, um, when I, I, I'm unfaithful to Lily, or I, I'm cruel to someone at work, or whatever it might be, instead of immediately coming before the altar of Christ, I like to sort of get back into church, maybe give it a couple of weeks, um, sing, praise at church, sing songs at church with you guys, uh, go to a few Bible studies. And, and it's only once I've sort of done a bit of work that I feel able to come to Jesus and celebrate his sacrifice. Do people relate to that? We create distance between our sin and, and God. But I've got it wrong, haven't I? Because it all starts with sacrifice. That moment of sin, yes, I do sin, and, and we all sin every day, but our restoration with God doesn't start with our work. I can't work my way back to a position where finally I can be right with God again. No, it starts with the sacrifice that Jesus has made. So we can distance ourselves from our sin, but, but we've got to remember it starts with sacrifice. I think, I think another way that we can get this wrong is we take pride in our work. We puff ourselves up. When we lead a good study at Focus, or we feel like we've done a great job of hosting people at home, and we puff ourselves up, and we're like, great, yeah, finally. Um, people are starting to look at me, say that they're doing a great job. It all starts with sacrifice. The reason we can do those things, the reason why we have the opportunity to serve in that way, is because Jesus Christ died. Our value and our worth before God is not in our works, but in the sacrifice of Jesus. It all starts with him. And I think the third way that we can get this the wrong way around is we, we can despair at our feeble efforts. I'm sure there are some among here who, who feel that they're not worthy, who feel that they don't have enough to give, feel like they don't have a place that they can serve, or they don't feel like they're worth the love of their church family or worth the love of God. It all starts with sacrifice. There's nothing that you can do to make yourself worthy, but Jesus has made you infinitely worthy of your trusting in him today. So we don't need to despair because our efforts are feeble. Our efforts will always fall short of what we can do. Yes, there's a job for us to do and we need to put to work, but it all starts with the sacrifice of Christ. So whether we're distancing ourselves from sin, or we're taking pride in our work, or we're despairing at our weakness, let's remember that it all starts with the sacrifice of Jesus. So it all starts with sacrifice, then get to work, and then finally look down with me at verse 10. There are mixed emotions. There are mixed emotions. Um, so when they laid the foundations of the Lord, with praise and thanksgiving, they sang, He is good, His love to Israel endures forever. They all sung out in praise. They're celebrating that finally they're back in Israel. They're finally together again. The foundations of the temple are laid. Once again, they can be restored with Him. But, verse 12, there were many of the older priests who saw the old temple at Solomon's temple and they started weeping, they started crying. And then verse 13, and I've been struck this week by how stunningly realistic this verse is. No one can distinguish 
the sound of shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because people were making so much noise. Can you picture the scene? There's some people who are celebrating because they're right with God. And then there are a bunch of people who are weeping. They're grieving for what was lost. There's lots of different um, perspectives around why the older people are weeping here. And I think there's quite a few layers to it. One is that this temple isn't like the old one. It's not as good. Right? They say, it says, and when they saw these foundations, they began to weep. They see the, the foundations of this second temple and they're nostalgic for what they once had in the old temple with Solomon. I think there's, a, there's another layer to that as well where if, you, if you're one of those Levites, if you're one of those old people that's been around and you've seen the old temple, you've seen it destroyed and then you see this one and you think, are we just back at the beginning again? Remember how good the old temple was, but our sin broke that. And so as they see this new temple they see the inevitability that their sin is going to break this one again. It's mixed emotions. And, and this is Christian life. The joy of being with God, the joy of being right with God, sometimes feels so great, doesn't it? And then it gets pierced by mourning or grief. Or it gets pierced by our own sin. Or it gets pierced because things aren't as good as they once were. And we live in this constant, turbulent life where the good and the bad just collide. It's mixed emotions. But what are we to do with that? Well, praise God for Jesus. Because these Levites and the older people that we see in verse 12 or 13, all they can do is look back, right? So they've got this temple in front of them, and all they can see is the old temple from 70 years ago. And so they have these mixed emotions. But thanks to Jesus, we see the perfect fulfillment of the temple. And we can look forward. We can look forward to a day when that temple will be perfectly restored. When the relationship between God and his people will once again be totally united. Revelation tells us that God's name will be on our forehead. We will be named by God. We will be perfectly united with him. And so, yes, we live in a time of mixed emotions. But thanks to Jesus, it all starts with the sacrifice of Jesus. And then looking forward from him, we have a day when he will come once again. The temple will be perfectly restored. And our relationship with God will be perfect once again. So our mixed emotions can be met with hope. It doesn't take away the sadness. It doesn't take away the grief, if there's grief. But there is hope. There's hope because we have a perfect temple in Christ, which one day we will live in. So let's land this then. In Ezra chapter 3, the Israelites go back to Jerusalem they were once scattered in judgment across Persia, and here they are, united once again before God. And the first thing they do is they institute the sacrifices because it all starts with sacrifice. The relationship between us and God has to start with sacrifice. And from that sacrifice, by God's grace, we can work for his kingdom. We see them get to work in the building of the temple. And then there'll be continuous mixed emotions. But by God's grace, we have hope. Let me pray. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. We thank you that even though we are far from you so often, um, that you have given us the perfect sacrifice, the perfect substitute, and you have made a way for us to be right with you. So, Lord, we pray that we would trust that today. And we pray that we would trust you today. In Jesus' name, amen.